Good morning, Rogers Park. We are in a series called Explore God, where we're looking at some of the big questions um, about life. My name is Phil Adams, one of the pastors here, predominantly working over in West Rogers Park and Devon Avenue with Lamb and Shine and the team there, um, planting house churches amongst the nations and all the people from around the world there. But it's my joy this morning to, to bring God's word to you. If you've got a Bible, please turn to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. <clears throat> if you've got one of the house Bibles at the door at back, it'll be page 259. And Psalm chapter 19. Just let you know, as I preach this morning, we're going to have questions at the end. So Jimmy Borshek will come up and Parker will come up and I'll be here and we're going to ask, answer the questions that you text in. So you see up on the screen, it says Task Ask RP and then your questions. So if you have a question while I'm speaking, feel free to fire it away there and we'll get it up on the screen at the end. Let's read Psalm chapter 19. We're going to look this morning at the first verse, but we're going to read the whole psalm. Psalm 19 verse 1 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes under like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let, not have, let, not, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my heart and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. God, we come to you. We bring ourselves to you, God, and we are thankful, God, that you are a God that is big and huge and vast, and yet you're a God that comes close, and you're a God that hears our voice. When we speak it out of our mouth, God, and we speak it in our mind, God, you listen and you hear. So, God, we come to you this morning asking, God, for you to reveal yourself, make yourself known through your word this morning. In your name, amen. I have the weary task this morning of answering the question, is there a God? It's kind of, <laughs> kind of feel like I just talk to God. So it's coming out of that. It's like, is there a God? But I have the weighty task this morning of answering the question, is there a God? And I've been trying to figure out where to start that question. And I want to come out of the gate this morning being clear about what I believe. Just so you know from the outset. And maybe it maybe it's, goes without saying, but I am staking my life on the belief that there is a God. I am staking my life on the belief that there is a God. And maybe to be more 
precise, I'm staking my life on the belief that the God of the Bible is. That the God of the Bible is in existence. I moved to China with my wife when I was 22 to share with people about the Bible. Every night before bed, we read the Bible and pray to God with our kids. I spent three years in seminary to become a pastor where people joke it's the only degree that qualifies you to earn less than the job you had before you started studying. (laughs) I have staked my life (laughs) on the belief that the God of the Bible is in existence. I believe at some point there is more than just material. I believe everyone in this room is of worth and that worth is determined by something more than our weight in flesh. I believe the more we discover, the more we discover mystery. I believe at some point my brain becomes more than meat and it might be there that my brain meets my soul. I believe that I don't really know whether the love that I have for my children is natural or supernatural. I believe I don't really know if thinking about the fact I'm thinking is an act of spirituality or a bodily function. I believe I wonder sometimes if understanding how babies are conceived makes life less of a miracle. I believe that I don't know at what point we should declare incredible improbabilities like the particulars necessary for life on earth. I don't know when we should declare these incredible improbabilities, practical impossibilities without a divine designer. But what I do believe is that to not believe in God is a belief that I can relate to. Because there have been times in my life that I felt like I'm stabbing in the dark. Times I've wondered, what am I doing? What am I believing in? There have been times when I've wondered if I'm being superstitious. Times when my faith has been weak. John Lennon's famous song in 1971, Imagine, opens with the line, Imagine there is no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine there is no heaven, it's easy if you try. It's that simple line that sums up our predicament this morning. I'm really uncomfortable trying to prove that God exists. I think a lot of apologetics declarations of proof that God exists can feel kind of anxious and kind of reactive and kind of coldly intellectual. But I'm grateful for scientists and Philosophers, a whole lot smarter than me, working today at the best universities and the best institutions, declaring with confidence that this world screams created. People like Francis Collins, who is currently the head of the U.S. National Institute of Health. Gerard Atterill, who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 2007. William D. Phillips, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1997. Each of whom point with profound intelligence beyond my scope that belief in God is not blind belief, but belief based on evidence. Here are a few things. One way to argue for the existence of God is to infer his existence from existence itself. Something cannot come from nothing. Nothing cannot produce something. Everything must come from something that already has being. Another argument for God is the apparent fine-tuning and design of the world. 
the constants of physics, the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the strength of the strong and weak nuclear forces, all of which must have almost the exact values that they do in order to have life on earth. Of all the possible arrangements of settings, there, has only, there is only one in billions of trillions that could have produced life on this planet. Our DNA is made up of a perfectly ordered alphabet of 3.5 billion letters. If we find one word written on the sand at the beach, we'd assume someone wrote it. Another argument is the moral argument. If there is no God, morality is an illusion caused by either our evolutionary biology or our culture, and consequently to have a materialistic worldview and then say there is right and there is wrong, that morals are binding is logically incoherent with our higher power. If there is no God, there is nothing on which to ground human rights. Within a materialistic worldview, our ideas, hopes, and loves are nothing but chemical reactions. We are nothing but chemical reactions. Francis Crick, the biologist and neuroscientist, wrote, You, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, ambitions, your sense of personal identity, and your free will, you are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Another argument comes from meaning. If all there is is the material, there is no free will and consequently no meaning. We are just ongoing processes and shouldn't even know to look for meaning. Another argument comes from Aristotle, fourfold, the fourfold notion of causality, one being formal cause. We see in the material world that different, object effect, if different object, objects affect each other different in different ways. At some point, we sooner or later are stuck asking, why? A child can simply ask, why was the glass shattered? Well, because a brick was thrown at it. Well, do bricks, why, do brick, why do bricks break glass rather than bounce off it? Well, because glass is fragile and bricks are hard. Why does heaviness rather than lightness break fragile things? Well, because of their chemical compositions. Why can't this chemical composition have this effect rather than that effect? And so on and so on and so on. And at some point, sooner or later, the answer for our reality being like this rather than something else is going to sound potentially spooky. And someone might have to respond and say, because that's just the way it is. Or as a theist might ask, why did God will it to be this way? To which the response can be because of his wise, holy, and loving will. Well, why did God's wise, holy, and loving will decide it to be this way? because of his wise, holy, and loving will. <laughs> I believe everything that I just said, and I'm grateful for these arguments that frankly quickly go over my head. And I'm thankful because I understand that we are intellectual beings and so communicating deep truths about reality is going to be a good way to argue for the existence of God. I understand that people are intellectual, but what if we aren't? What if my grandmother isn't? So trying to convince her that intellectual argument, convince her through an intellectual argument of God would be difficult. So I have to ask then, if there is a God, is finding God beyond her reach? 
And if you're here and those arguments go over your head or those arguments are just mind-numbing or just mind-numbingly boring, is belief in God beyond your reach as well? But then I could also ask if there is a God and he did only want to be met, found, discovered through the pondering of philosophers and scientific discoveries, what would that say about him? Well, it would say that he's indifferent to revealing himself to the common person, to the illiterate, to the ill, to the disadvantaged. It would say he's an elitist. If there is a God and he has only made himself discoverable to those that can read Aristotle, I'm not sure if I would want my grandmother to meet him or if it would make any difference in her life. Maybe meeting that kind of God would make her life worse. Maybe he'd laugh at her. I don't know. There's a verse in the Bible that we read, Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's saying that the distance of the stars and the beauty of the sky stir within us a belief in God. There's another verse in Romans 1, verse 20. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And just so we are clear on what we're reading here, it's saying that something invisible can be clearly perceived. So it's speaking about something like love. The most powerful thing holding families and countries and this world together. It's speaking about something like energy. It's speaking about something like time. Something we cannot see but can't imagine living outside of. But here's ultimately the tension I find myself in this morning. If I were to say that I believe in this truth statement that God is clearly perceived, and then I still went on trying to stretch your minds beyond what is clear for the sake of proving God's existence, would I be contradicting my belief in this verse? That God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. But then also... If God is clearly perceived, why isn't God just clear? Why would I have to even consider stretching your minds this morning beyond what is clear to prove God's existence? If God is clearly perceived, why isn't it just clear? Well, I would say, historically, it has been. And for the majority of the world, it still is. In 2015, a Pew study projected that the percentage of atheists, agnostics, and religiously unaffiliated will slowly but steadily decline from 16.4% of the world's population today to 13.2% 40 years from now. Looking at Christianity alone, last Sunday there were more Christians attending church in China than there were in all of Europe. By 2020, Christianity will have grown from 11.4 million Christians in East Asia in 1970 and 1.2% of the population to 171 million and 10.5% of the population. 
In 1910, only 12 million people, or 9% of Africa's population, were Christians, but they will number 630 million, or 49.3% of the populace by 2020. Last Sunday, in each of the nations, Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, and South Africa, there were more Anglicans in church than there were Anglicans and Episcopalians in all of Britain and the United States combined. University of London professor Eric Kaufman, a Canadian and a secularist, in his book, Shall a Religious Inherit the Earth, speaks about the crisis of secularism and argues that the shrinkage of secularism and liberal religion is inevitable. And in the last page of his book, he answers the question, that is the title of the book, Shall a Religious Inherit the Earth? And in the last page, he answers with an unequivocal, Yes. So when I read that atheists and agnostics and the religiously unaffiliated currently take up 16% of the world's population and then will decline to 13% over the next 40 years, and then I read that God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, it seems that God, or at least something beyond the material world, continues to be clearly perceived to the majority of the world without argument, perceived without writing on the backs of philosophy, perceived by people like my grandmother. But what about us living in Chicago? I said at the beginning, what I do believe is that to not believe in God is a belief that I can relate to. Imagine there is no heaven, it's easy if you try. What do we do when those lyrics resonate in our culture and our lives within a world that backs up the Bible's statement that God is clearly perceived? What do we do when those lyrics resonate in our culture and in our lives within a world that struggles to imagine there is no heaven even if they try? It says in Oxfam's website, the global charity, it takes just four days for a CEO for one of the top five global fashion brands to earn what a Bangladeshi garment worker will earn in her entire lifetime. Let me give you that again. It takes just four days for a CEO from one of the top five global fashion brands to earn what a Bangladeshi garment worker will earn in her entire lifetime. 42 people hold as much wealth as the 3.7 billion people who make up the poorer half of the world's population. 56% of the global population lives on between $2 and $10 a day. 1% of the world owns half the world's wealth. If you have in some shape or form $4,210 to your name or your family's name, you're richer than half of the world's population. And what I want to submit to you this morning is that our world is divided or on a sliding scale between those who perceive themselves to be in control of the world and those who perceive themselves to be at the mercy of something higher than themselves. And I'm using my words very carefully because I'm not necessarily talking about what people intellectually believe. I'm talking about people's day-in, day-out sense of reality, what we feel to be true. What I'm submitting to you is that when the world around us becomes controlled and bent for our convenience, it is more difficult to clearly perceive the world as reflecting towards something bigger than us and easier to see it reflecting back at us. 
atheism takes root in a society that begins to perceive the world as a world for me, by me. Or you could say atheism takes root in a society that perceives the world to have lost its wonder. But it's less that science has directly caused us to lose the wonder and more science has allowed us to take hold of wonder and shape wonder around our desires. When we use stone to build our homes and cover those stones with plaster, when we thin copper into wires and hide them in our walls and brighten our homes with light bulbs and centralize our heating out of Amazon Prime, same-day delivery, when we have coffee on call and CTA trains on time, our sense of reality shifts. Not through monumental life-changing decisions, not through intellectual discovery, Our sense of reality shifts through everyday repetitions that tell us reality is for us. So what we have to become, what we've come to perceive as real, what we come to perceive as true, is that which bends to our convenience. Let me try and explain this a little more. Stay with me. We are increasingly growing into a world that responds to us by affirming the desires of our hearts. We're increasingly growing into a world that responds to us by affirming the desires of our hearts. I want my iPhone to have a better camera. We're working on it now. I want to control my TV by speaking to it. No problem. I want my car to be quieter. I want the seats to be heated. I want it to drive itself. Here you go. I want Facebook to serve me better even though I'm paying nothing for it. Our reality becomes perceived as one Amazon delivery away from our next wish. The government is for me. The economy is for me. Netflix is personalizing itself for me. Even movies are being released with personalized ending chosen by me for me. And consequently, we begin to experience reality as a world that is weaving itself around our convenience. So if God was real... Surely he'd be weaving himself around my convenience as well. But because he's not showing up in a way that is convenient to me, he mustn't exist. When God doesn't become subject to our convenience, he must not exist. Because everything else is. Joseph Minich says, arguably, there has been more control over the natural world gained in the last 500 years than in all of the human history before this time put together. And even now, it is significant to note that irreligion is highly correlated with a material, comfortable lifestyle. That is, it is mostly a well-to-do phenomenon, which is to say that it is a phenomenon tied to those with maximum control and maximum freedom. Conversely, one will find very little irreligion among the developing worlds or even among the poor in Western nations. I would submit to you that those in the world who are forced to realize through everyday repetitions that they are not in control hold one of the greatest truths of reality that none of us are in control. And all of us are at the mercy of something bigger than us, something not centered around our convenience. Proverbs 30, verse 7 says, Give me neither riches nor poverty. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? 
It's been said that the greatest achievement of the secular society is its ability to suppress the questions and live with no answers to the deepest longings of humanity. Why are we here and what is the point? And what is it that allows us to suppress these questions? The ability to control and create comfort. Until comfort turns to crisis. And something happens in our lives so that we are confronted with the harsh reality that there is a force outside of us to which we are ultimately subject. And no matter how much control we can build up in our lives, there is always going to be a force speaking with clarity, with reminders. Reminders found in our refusal to call our newborn babies chemicals. Reminders found in knowing that nobody unequivocally ever should be raped. Reminders that a world with so much love and meaning and purpose can't have none. Reminders that say, that say death always means something's broken. Reminders that say there is a force outside of us communicating their story of reality louder than we can deny its voice. Because there is worth. And there is dignity. And there is design. And there is love. And there is morality. And there is meaning which are explained the most simply and the most logically by belief in a creator. But here's the thing. Belief in a force or believing in the supernatural, which isn't that hard, far to stretch when you can get your palm read down the street, or believing in a creator It doesn't really matter unless it's a God worth knowing. And I understand the question this morning was, is there a God? But I'd ask you to indulge me just for a moment because I said at the beginning, I'm not only staking my life on the belief in the existence of God. I'm staking my life on my belief that the God of the Bible is, that the God of the Bible is in existence. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 5. Mark was one of Jesus' disciples who wrote a record of his time with Jesus. And one of the stories involves Jesus moving through a large crowd of people and he's walking. There was a woman that reached out and touched the bottom of his coattails. But what we have to know is the background story to this woman. In Mark chapter 5, 29, Paul refers to this woman using graphic expression meaning whip, lash, or torment. And it's a term that combines the idea of physical suffering and deep, deep shame. And then in verse 26, there is this flow of descriptors telling us more about this woman. We read, for 12 years, in some shape or form, she had an incurable flow of blood. We read, she has suffered from the attempts of many doctors to heal her. We read she has spent all of her money to be made well. And we read her conditions only got worse. But she says to herself, if I could only touch Jesus' garments, I'll be made well. And we don't really know all that was going on in this woman's mind. She, she had maybe heard that Jesus was healing people or it, was un, it, and it wasn't uncommon in Jesus' time for people to try and touch those that were deemed powerful as a kind of superstitious way to gain power. Alexander the Great was often mobbed by crowds who would try to touch his hands and touch his legs and touch his knees. But whatever the case, this woman said to herself, if I could only touch Jesus' garment, I will be made well. And then in verse 29, it reads like this. 
And immediately as she touched Jesus' garment, the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. And then verse 30, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched me? In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be sharing another message on, Is Jesus really God? So I don't want to jump too far ahead. But let me explain one reason why I believe Jesus is God. We live in a world of evaluation and judgment. Judgment as to what is right and judgment as to what is wrong. We read the news and we cast our own verdict. We watch movies and we stay engaged by the tension created when wrongs need to be made right. Chicago believes in right. Chicago believes in wrong. This week, Chicago stood still with a deep groan looking justice. And when I look at the life of Christ, I see a life echoing everything that's right. Under the eye of historical scrutiny, I see a life echoing everything that is right. Or maybe it's better to say in this world, everything right I see as an echo of who Jesus is. In Jesus, I see justice. In Jesus, I see love. I see humility. I see grace. I see equality. I don't see injustice, I don't see hate, I don't see pride, I don't see elitism. I see everything that is right. And then as Bob Dylan sings, to preach of peace and brotherhood, oh might, what might be the cost? A man, he did it long ago, and they hung him on a cross. One more reason I believe Jesus is God. Today, I find him where I would expect to find him. What I see in Jesus, and especially the story of him interacting with this suffering woman and countless other stories just like it, tells me to expect him still today to be not only met, found, discovered through the pondering of philosophers and scientific discoveries, but to be found in the lives of the ill and the illiterate and the disadvantaged all around the world. And today I find him where I would expect to find him. Or to put it another way, in the lives of the humble. James 4 verse 7 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When Jesus turned around and asked, who touched me? It says, knowing what had happened to her, the woman came in fear and trembling and she fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Why did I tell you this story? Because I see myself in this woman. Because I think she might have felt like she was stabbing in the dark. I'm not sure if she entirely knew what she was doing. I wonder if she wondered whether she was being superstitious. And yet... Jesus still stopped, and he turned around and said, who touched me? When the woman came to Jesus, Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. We don't really know how much faith, but we know it was enough faith. Rogers Park, there have been times I felt like I'm stabbing in the dark. Times I've wondered, what am I doing? There have been times when I've wondered, am I being superstitious? 
times when my faith has been weak, but the little faith I've had, which at times hasn't been much, has always been enough for Jesus to stop and say, who touched me? In my experience, just like this story, when I reach out with the little faith that I have, it's less that I find God and more like he stops, turns around, and finds me. Just so you know, my grandmother knows Jesus. She hasn't always. My grandfather was an alcoholic down in Cork on the southern tip of Ireland. When my mom was a little girl, he would take her to the pub with him and he would get drunk and he'd get into fights. Well, one day my mother went to church and in simple faith, she reached out to Jesus. And then she went home and then one by one, so did her six siblings. And then did my grandmother and then did my grandfather and then Jesus transformed a family. I think I maybe have shared this before, but I'll share it again. Ian Wilson, he graduated from Oxford in the early 1970s and became a hardened atheist. He hung out with Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, if you know them. But years later, he returned to belief in God, and this is what he says. Speaking of faith in Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, the hopeful thing is that when it's tried, when it's imperfectly and hesitantly followed, as it flickers in the countless unseen Christian lives, it works. And its palpable and remarkable power to transform human life takes us to the position of believing that something very wonderful indeed began with the birth of Christ into the world. One last thing, and I know I'm reading too much. I need to get off the stage. Christopher Weeman, a professor at Yale, a once atheist, writes this about coming to faith. When I ascended to the faith that was latent within me, it seemed as if the tiniest seed of belief had finally flowered in me, or more accurately, as if I had happened upon, upon some rare flower deep in the desert and had known, though I was just then discovering it, that it had been blooming impossibly year after parched year in me, surviving all of the seasons of my unbelief. And then I ascended to the faith that was latent within me. And then he writes in a prayer the most beautiful words, God, so great is my hunger for you, or is my hunger for you evidence of your hunger for me? Rogers Park, I am not only staking my life on my belief in the existence of God, and I'm not only even staking my life on my belief that the God of the Bible is, I'm staking my life on my belief that the God of the Bible loves me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for revealing yourself. God, we thank you for speaking into our souls with clarity. God, I pray that we will be a people who look up and we see you and we search for you, knowing, God, that you will turn around and say, who touched me? And you will find us, God. We thank you in your name. Amen. Hey, guys, we're going to answer some of the questions that got texted in, so please take a seat. Or if you've got kids out in the, the uh, children's ministry, please go um, pick them up. As the, they've been cared for for a long time now, and they're probably excited to see you. But, uh, yeah, let's go through some of the first questions. The first question that we got, is it normal for Christians to go through seasons of doubting God's existence? What should I do if I'm in that season? Yeah, um... I would say it, it is normal, and a unique thing about Christianity is that 
We're not a religion. This isn't a religion that uh, you can't ask questions about. You know, we, don't, we don't shame each other for having these questions. We're invited to ask these questions, as we can see throughout the Bible over and over, God's people wrestling with him. Um, so I, I think it is normal. But what should I do in those seasons? Um, I want to encourage you in those seasons, and I go through those seasons, think. Don't, don't hide from your doubts. Don't hide from your thoughts. Think about them. What would it be like if there is no God? Right? What would that look like? Would I have value and all the things that Phil talked about today? Would those exist? Would I have human rights if there were no God? Would I be able to think like this? Would I be able to ask myself this question if there were no God? And so I want to invite you, man, don't hide from those. Don't hide into an emotion or I just need to feel it. Use your mind and think about it. Um, real quick, uh, about superstition. You know, am I being superstitious? Well, why is that a problem if there's no God? Like, who cares if I'm being superstitious? It's helping me survive, maybe. If there's a God, then yeah, we don't want to be superstitious. We want to know the truth. And so even to ask that question presupposes that God exists. So I, I would encourage you, embrace it, and, and continue to think. Yeah, and I'll say something here, too. Um, last week when I was preaching, I mentioned in the intro that I, I've gone through some pretty profound seasons of doubt, and um, there, there was a, about a two-year period. I, I became a Christian when I was in college, and, and about three four years later, went through a, about a two-year period where um, it was just kind of a constant questioning. It, is God real? What, what, what's truth? Um, kind of unpacking the whole thing and reevaluating it. And I've gone through some seasons like that since then. Um, not, not quite as intense as that one, but uh, regularly I think significant questions come up where I'm asking those things and, and uh, trying to work through it. And so I've learned over the years uh, kind of how to handle a season like that. And um, the, the counsel I'd give you, I, I would invite you to um, doubt your doubts and fuel your faith. Um, Question your doubts just as much as you're questioning your faith. Ask those questions. So doubt your doubts, feel your faith. And the second thing, invite others into it with you. Um, I think a lot of times when doubts come up, when questions come up, you can get caught up in your own head, at least I can. And when it's just caught up in here, I can kind of take myself down the rabbit hole and get lost. But when I start talking about it with someone and I, I go, to some, go to a friend and I say, hey, Phil, like I'm thinking about this stuff. And he says, oh, yeah, I've thought about that too. And it, it doesn't, you know, like here, here's some of the ways I've thought about it. It's like, oh, okay, like maybe I'm not crazy for having these thoughts. You know, and so I would just invite you to invite some other people into it. Um, if, you, if you've got questions for you in that season right now, come talk to me. I'd love to walk through it with you, uh, get, point you to some good resources, help you process it. Um, it's not unusual. And, and I think, just to reiterate, um, Christianity has uh, great evidences going for it. You're not going to find proof. You're never going to be able to prove it. But, but the claim in this whole series is that uh, Christianity makes better sense than the alternatives do. And, and we think there's good reasons to believe. That's why I still believe. And so we invite you to come talk with us about that. Next question. If something cannot come from nothing, where did God come from? Parker. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. <clears throat> yeah, so usually the, the question goes, um, if everything has a cause, then who caused God? Right? Um, and and it's, worded, it's worded poorly. So what Christians believe is that everything that began to exist has a cause. God never began to exist. He didn't start beginning. He's the self-existent fact, the fact of all facthood. Um, he is the ultimate exp, uh, explanation for everything. And so the, the traditional doctrine of God in Christianity is that he is, he's self-existent. And so, well, that just pushes the question back, pushes the question... Does it make sense, um, 
Hold on, let me, let me reword this. God is the necessary precondition for all thought, for all possibility, for all existence. Um, so when you say, when we look at things in this reality and we say, well, this had a cause, and, and Phil did a good job of showing how everything goes back and goes back and goes back, there's, there has to be an original causer, right? And so what, what we get from the Bible and not just mere speculation is that God is self-existent, that God is the creator. And so when we believe in God, we can make sense of change in the world. And when we don't believe in God, that's when we run into this problem of, well, what caused that? Well, what caused that? Well, what caused that? Infinite regress, right? And we can't think of that. So when we believe in God, we can make sense of the world. Um, that's, a, that's a tough one. Uh, I can't fully answer here. I'd love to get into it with you. If you want to talk philosophy, you want to talk uh, some more apologetics afterwards, hit me up. I love it. Yeah, and I'll say this about Parker real quick. Um, so he's, he's getting a master's degree right now at Trinity. Uh, he's in, deeply into philosophy. He's one of the smartest dudes I know. Um, so if you've got questions like this one, he's a great resource to talk to. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. With such a long history of abuses within the church, Christianity as a whole over many years, what is our role in addressing these and taking the stumbling, blo stumbling block away from those that do not believe? Do we apologize and explain? I, I would say that we, we be very clear about history and we don't try and wipe, wipe away history. Reality is, is reality and people are going to uh, learn about it in ways that we're not going to learn about it and we're going to have to listen. We're going to have to hear their story, hear what they're, what they're talking about and then, then come in from that posture with, with a whole lot of love and grace. And I think the, 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 the thing that's in my mind right now is just the ability that gives us to say, yeah, we're sinners. Yeah, well, with Christianity, we, we, we don't believe that um, we're perfect in any way. So it makes a lot of sense that there might be some bad things in our history. And then there's also, you can also just open up the scriptures. And like I did today, look at Jesus. And you say, Jesus is loving. Jesus is kind. Jesus is grace. And that's, that's, the, that's what we're, we're aiming for. And when people are straying away from that, we also need to call out other Christians or people that are professing themselves to be Christians. So we can also evaluate with them on the historical things and say, look, I'm looking at the standard of Christ here and what we're to live up to. They didn't. And I have to question whether they, they claim that they have the Christian to be true. What, uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. looked at white Christians who were not getting on board with the civil rights movement and who were actually um, continuing the injustices, you know, Christians who were, who were abusing um, power and whatnot, what he said to them was not, hey, reject Christianity, get rid of it, because Christianity is the problem. What he told them was put it on more fully. Be more fully what Christ has called you to be. Uh, he saw Christianity as the solution, not the problem. And so along the lines of what Phil is saying, that's a historical example of, of I think, someone who did that really well. Um, and I think for all of us, the answer is go to the source and then put it on fully. Hmm. Okay, next question. We need to keep moving. What is the beauty of the one true God being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? This is, a, this is a great question. And the beauty, I think it's one of the beauties that we miss sometimes, but the incredible beauty that's birthed out of a God that is three and one. And what, one of the things that just always um, stirs affection in my soul is seeing that, that God loved the Son eternally into the past. 
And Christ the Son loved his Father eternally, eternally into the past. And seeing that we aren't the first thought of relationship God had, he already had a framework that he was working from, and it was a perfect framework. And we don't, when we become children of God, we get brought into that love. We got, we got brought into the center of that and to say, you're a son um, as well. So there's, there's incredible truth. Also, in the fact that we, just, we have this Holy Spirit now within us as God's people, that God is that close. I said at the beginning that God is big, that God is infinite, and yet he comes and dwells within us. And if you're a follower of Christ here this morning, you'll have felt those stirrings of God within your soul, um, reminding you of who he is and his love for you. There are so many different religious texts and ideas about what God is like. How do we know what's true about him and what isn't? Um, Okay. Uh, I'm going to punt a little bit on this one because in a couple weeks we're going to talk about the question, is Christianity too narrow? We're going to look at, um, do a little bit of uh, comparative religion and look at how different religious traditions approach the question of who God is and whatnot. But what I will say for today is that uh, if God is personal, if there is a personal God, what it takes to know a person is revelation. Um, The only way that you can get to know me is if I tell you about myself. It's the only way you can know someone genuinely. And so uh, for anyone to know God, it requires God, if God is personal, to reveal himself. And so the question then becomes, where do you find genuine revelation of God? And you can look at that kind of from an evidentiary perspective and evaluate different religious traditions. Um, In fact, uh, some religious traditions don't postulate a God, and other religious traditions postulate lots of gods. Um, You think of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, you have three different uh, approaches to the revelation of God and um, how those are interrelated. And we'll talk about that a little more in a few weeks. But you can evaluate those claims and say, hey, wh- what, what evidence do you have? What support do you have for the claims that these different traditions are making about who God is? Um, so that, that's what I'll say for today. And come back in a couple weeks and you get the fuller answer. Okay, last question. How do I talk with people in my life about God if they don't want to hear it? You know, we got two people in our church, Zori and Assie, sitting at the back. And they know this question well. If you know their story, if you don't know their story, you can go and you can find out their story at back. How do I talk with people in my life about God if they don't want to hear it? And the first thing that thing kind of comes into my mind at the moment is that we've got to listen better to the people around us. Yes, we are people to proclaim the gospel into people's lives, but we also have to stop and listen. If you look at Jesus, he didn't say the same gospel twice. He didn't go to see people with the same message, same message, same message. He, he made it bespoke. He made it um, personal for them. So we got to listen deeply into people's hearts and stories and see where the gospel connects with them. But we're out of time and we're going to be back next week. And if you have more questions, please come down. We're at the, at the bottom of the stage.